Hello, everyone, and welcome to this month's Cab Chat podcast. I'm Dr. Mindy Waite, and we have with us, as always, Dr. Jessica Lockhart. Hello, everyone. And we have a really special guest. I'm I'm so excited to chat about this paper with all of you because it um it it I shouldn't say it's been a long time coming because I don't know how long you've worked on it, Erica, maybe a while, maybe not, but it's a paper that I think the field desperately needs. And it was um authored by Dr. Erica Feuerbacher, who is the assistant professor in animal and poultry welfare at Virginia Tech. And she also has, she's also the, um, I don't know, the overseer, the PI of the Applied Animal Behavior and Welfare Lab within Virginia Tech. So hi, Erica. Hi, thanks for having me. And I know many of you um, know her because she has been on the show before. And the paper that she recently published, which we will put on the site, is, in my opinion, one of the first great steps towards looking at a really formal, empirical approach to treating separation-related problem behavior in dogs. So, Erica, I think my first my first thought for you is, can you can you say why you you looked at, you wrote this paper and you did this research? Yeah. So, um, separation-related problem behavior is is certainly a really pervasive behavioral issue in dogs, and those listeners whose dogs have had it also know. How how severe it is. I think it's, to me, other than sort of intra-household aggression, it's probably one of the most severe because it can be really sort of life-paralyzing. And it is um, notoriously difficult to treat. And the research that's out there, um, I was never quite satisfied with their mm-hmm. measurements of the behavior, the intervention, how the intervention proceeded, or the outcomes. And so we really wanted to you know, look at this um, and give people a sense of what does this treatment look like trial by trial, um, and what do these outcomes look like. And we were also interested in using owner return as a reinforcer. Um, we had some prior research suggesting that access to the owner is a reinforcer for dogs, and I think some of those treatment packages out there for separation-related problem behavior, although they call it desensitization, might in fact have an operant component to it Mm -hmm. if the owner is returning. And so we wanted to make owner return contingent on desirable behavior. Yeah. And I'm glad you mentioned the the current literature that exists because I had done like a sort of minor lit review on it a couple years ago. And I recall being similarly dissatisfied in that um, the the after the intervention was applied, it was common for those papers to determine whether the intervention worked by essentially asking the owners to rate their dog's behavior. Right. Yeah. And and some of those, um, I mean, that's not a very strong measure to begin mm-hmm. with. And some did better where they would ask the owner to report it on a daily basis, but some were asking owners to recall behavior over weeks or months at a time, which just really from we know from the psychological uh, literature on how humans do with memory tasks it just gets super muddy and and we really don't get a an accurate measure then of how that treatment affected the dog's behavior yeah and then I recall also some of like the intervention packages and I remember reading these papers because I wanted to know how to apply a separation um, related behavior intervention and I remember the methods were often quite vague they would say uh, we we gave the owners a separation protocol and it included some drugs <laughs> like right. what does that mean right yes and i and i think um it's a pretty tricky thing to pull off um even if we just tell the owner leave come back leave come mm-hmm. back and we don't add in the you know watch behavior like we did in our study um that's even challenging because i think we don't know what criteria steps they should be taking and um you know how how long they can go before you know they're pushing the dog over the threshold and they're going to have problems so i and i think a lot of those papers also start off with much too big a chunk of time you know they're taking like 5 minutes in the best papers, mm. five minute leaps of criteria levels, which I think that dog is never going to succeed. Um, and you're right, those are the ones that are more specific and the others are really vague. Like we tell the owner not to yes. um, uh, engage with the dog before they leave or ignore the dog upon return. And um, and then the, what I think is the critical part, which is getting the dog used to being alone, <laughs> is really vague. Yes, 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 yes. So, so then in, um, can you describe where were you at when you started the study? 
Yeah, so I was in grad school. I was finishing my PhD. So this work was all at University of Florida. And um, so it is, as you said, a long time coming, Yeah, <laughs> mainly because... I didn't uh, know that though, but yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um, I've had a few data sets that uh, have been sitting around much too long, um, trying to make use of COVID time to... <laughs> Try and get some of that data out. And then, so for this paper, um, I see that you had five dogs. So I definitely want to go through like some of the methods and some of the results. So you had five dogs, or no, I'm sorry, six dogs, five of whom completed the study. And we're, like, whose dogs were these? Yeah, so they were just own dogs in um, the central northern Florida area. Um, and so we just put out a call for dogs whose owners reported they had separation-related problem behavior. And we did a 30-minute um, video session first where the owners left the dog and we recorded the dog's behavior to identify what sort of topographies the dogs engaged in. We had some that were mainly excessive vocalizers. They were barking and whining all the time. And we had a couple that engaged in destructive behaviors. And so that was kind of to verify that they do show the problem behavior and to give us an idea of what sort of problem behavior we would be dealing with with that dog. Okay. So, and Jessica, definitely chime in here because I'm sure you've got some great thoughts on the idea of of what is separate. I mean, I realize, I, I realize you've called it separation-related problem behavior, which I, I do like because that way you're not speculating about the anxiety portion of it. Um, but it's like there are papers out there that define how you would identify what separation anxiety or separation related problem behavior is. Um, and it's interesting to me that you potentially approached it as, is it a problem behavior according to the owner and does it occur when the owner's gone? Therefore, it is separation related problem behavior. You know, you're not trying to say, oh, it's got to like meet this criterion. It's got to meet that criterion. Yeah, we took a sort of a, a bigger, bigger view of it of like what what behaviors would owners complain about that their dogs engage in specifically when they're leaving or, you know, departing or or gone. And so you're right, we didn't try and um, restrict it to the more narrow diagnosis of separation anxiety. Mm -hmm. And I know there's some other papers out there looking at trying to tease apart whether this sort of umbrella category of separation related problem behavior is made up of different types of problem behaviors that might speak to needing different types of treatment. Oh. So there's always oh. <laughs> some new things out there. I mean, that's, yeah, yeah go for it. Now is trying to separate, uh, if you will, uh, separation anxiety versus confinement anxiety mm -hmm. versus boredom versus you know all these other issues but I agree I mean I think the point of this paper is mitigating the problem behavior mm -hmm. that occurs when you are not there yes um you know, whether the anxiety is stemming from being left alone or, you know, something bigger, I, I didn't, you know, I guess in the long run, that's going to be important. But mm -hmm. for the getting started part of it, let's, you know, let's start addressing these behaviors for sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think, you know, going forward, it'd be great to sort of um, differentiate between those different, those different potential causes for this problem behavior and see, you know, how do those dogs um do on on different treatments maybe some of those are solved faster than others and mm -hmm. some are really sort of resistant to treatment and might need you know medical uh, interventions as well and it's interesting that you will you talk about the anxiety piece versus potentially something else jessica because you know I, I think that's always been a speculation of potentially why meds work for some dogs and not others mm -hmm. But yeah, and yeah. and I think, you know, when people try to lay oh. down a blanket treatment for this, it, it doesn't mm -hmm. work because there are mm -hmm. different different issues, different things for sure. Yeah. And I wonder sometimes, Erica, just based on, you know, your previous study of like owner being a reinforcer of whether obviously there could be multiple functions to that in that maybe it's like, oh, no, the owner's leaving and like there goes my, um, you know, the my treat provider or um oh no, you know, there goes the owner and they play with me and I really, you know, like playing with them versus like, oh no, now I'm alone, which I realize is like anthropomorphizing horribly, but. You no, know, I, I think that's interesting because I think there are those dogs that um, are, they just can't be alone. Like if you left a 
mm-hmm. caregiver, someone else with them, a friend, they'd be okay. And other dogs are very much as like, no, it's that person. I don't care who else is here with me. Um, being separated from that person is still an issue, even though I'm not alone. And that's probably why, you know, when we, when people ask about, maybe I should get a, do- a second dog, it's like, maybe it'll work, maybe it won't. You know, <laughs> yeah. it, again, it kind of depends on whether it's the being alone part or it's the separation from that particular person. Yeah, and I think that that, you know, goes back to that whole functional analysis that we've talked about before. Mm. When you're trying to treat a behavior problem, it's what is that behavior mm-hmm hoping to gain you know what is the function of mm-hmm. of the issue um if it is man my treats walked away then providing durable long-lasting mm-hmm. enrichment items is going to help you out um some animals it's nope nope i don't want to be confined have being stuck in a small little case or crate yeah uh, that's what i don't like and there's there are the brave souls out there who will just one day decide you know what i'm gonna leave my dog out of the crate and we're gonna see what happens <laughs> and yeah. i'm like wow that that is brilliant and every now and then it it works out but a lot of times you come home and you need a new couch and new curtains and your well, carpet yeah. gone just think back in the day before video cameras, which I, we're going to chat about with Erica as well. Back in the day, you, like you just left. There, you know, there's no way to, in, to leave in a controlled way like you can now. So I, I feel really lucky with where we're at at this with technology these days. Yeah, I agree. And and I think the um, the crate one is always an interesting issue because mm-hmm. it's oftentimes suggested as a treatment for separation anxiety or separation related problem behavior. And it doesn't ever solve, like you said, if it's an issue of actual separation from the owner, it still doesn't solve that. You still have to get the dog, you know, used to and being able to tolerate being left alone. And added on, um, there are those dogs that the crate's the issue and they look horrible yeah. in the crate. And you think, wow, I'd never leave you alone in my yeah. house because look what you do to the crate. But you let them out of the crate and they're like, great, fine now. <laughs> but it is a huge risk. Mm-hmm. So thank goodness for technology. <laughs> And then, um, so so for your study, so you've got these six dogs, you did this video, they engaged in problem behavior when the owners indeed left. And then I saw for your intervention, you started them on what we would essentially normally start them on, which is a DRO. So differential reinforcement of other behavior, where essentially as long as they didn't engage in that problem behavior, the owner would return. And we're, you know, we're assuming that the owner here um, is the reinforcer. And so can you talk about a, why you started on DRO, and then B, why it looks like you changed it. Yeah, so we started with DRO just because we thought that's our best opportunity for getting the, you know, delivering a reinforcer to the dog. Mm-hmm. Um, if we wait for desirable, like in a specific desirable behavior, we might not see it, and then we're going to push the dog too far and get problem behavior. So we thought, well, let's just start with absence of problem behavior. Yeah. Hopefully they contact that reinforcer. And what we saw with a few dogs is some really sort of desirable behaviors emerge um, that we thought, well, we maybe we will start putting the contingency on those behaviors. And that was usually a, a sit or a, a down, some sort of sort of calm behavior that, you know, is essentially, um, although it's, it's not incompatible with, with vocalization, it isn't incompatible with destruction. Um, so that seemed like a really desirable behavior to have in a, a dog that was typically problematic while absent, while the owner's absent. So we, we changed those dogs to a differential reinforcement of alternative behavior. So the owner would return contingent on the dog exhibiting those behaviors. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And it's it's interesting that you chose the DRA because I have thought about that before because it, it allows the owners to see something, re- to really know what, what they're coming back for, essentially. Like, it's the very clear flag of when they can come back and when they shouldn't come back and when the dog is like doing okay um but what the concern i've always had with it was like let's say you choose a sit or a down and then the owner is on you know step 5000 where they leave for like four hours do you think at that time you would still make the return contingent on the down because then they'd have to in theory down for like four hours yeah i mean i think this might be a jumping off point for Mm -hmm. us of like you know we get the behavior going maybe we get the down Mm -hmm. for half an hour and i think again generally speaking we think if we can get past the half hour mark Mm -hmm. we're kind of more in home free territory although i think you know we need more data on that Um, so, you know, at that point we're hope, I think what we're hoping is if you've gotten up to those long durations that you're not seeing problem behavior and that the return Mm. is, you know, capturing whatever the dog was doing probably near the end of the return or, you know, maybe that, that whole interval. Um, so, you know, at that point, I think we're hoping that we don't Mm -hmm. have to make it contingent that the owner return is going to be coming on 
the heels of good behavior because we've shaped it up. Got it. Got it. So are you thinking like long term, um, maybe you start with a DRO and you see what the what behaviors the dog gives and then potentially changing it in the early stages to a DRA and then once you've hit a certain duration, changing it back to a DRO, like that's potentially the long-term goal? Yeah, I think so. And, and even maybe beyond a DRO, just going back to almost like a fixed time schedule of like, I'm going to leave you for half an hour and then I'll be back. Uh-huh. And hoping that, you know, if we have, <laughs> you know, shaped up that behavior and that duration well enough that our returns that are sort of non-contingent now, um, but still can function as reinforcers for those behaviors will be again, coming after the dog has been engaging in desirable behavior. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then, so I'm debating whether I want to go next to like what the what the setup looked like, like the, the technology or whether we want to go to the results, but probably the technology and the methods n- next. So you've got these dogs, you've determined what their interventions are going to look like. Um, but how did you decide on like, it, well, A, how did you help the owners like set up their household? B, how did you train the owners? And C, how did you choose criteria? I know that's a lot. So maybe start with the technology. <laughs> Sounds good. Yeah. So since we wanted to make the owner return contingent on the absence of problem behavior or specific desirable behaviors, we um, affixed a webcam where the dog was going to be left. And we told the owners, we're going to train the dogs where you want the dog to be eventually. So if you want the dog to be crated, uh, we're going to work the dog in the crate. If you want Mm -hmm. your dog in the living room, we're going to work the dog in the living room. So the owners got to choose where the dog was left. Um, We set up a webcam so we could see the dog's behavior, especially around the door. So, of course, we couldn't get the full room Mm -hmm. every once in a while they go off uh, out of of view. But for the most part, we could see them um, uh, in their space. Um, And then what we would do is we would tell the owner what they were going to do, which is you're going to tell the dog you're leaving. We asked them to give the dog a novel cue that they don't normally use. We're going to try and use this in training um, to teach the dog. Nice. When you hear these words, this is the contingency. Uh, Mom will come back when you're good, <laughs> as long as you're good. <laughs> um, and and so we had them do that. And then they would leave. And initially, everybody's criteria was you're going to step across the threshold of the door of the room and return immediately. Mm-hmm. And some dogs could handle that. And some of our dogs could not handle the owner even Mm -hmm. preparing for departure. And so we had to um, step our criteria way back for those dogs. And so it might have been for one dog, it was like the owner walking halfway across the room and then returning to the dog. And Mm -hmm. then we worked our way up to getting to the door and maybe out the door for very short amounts of time. So I think that's a really interesting first step to choose because every separation protocol, the first step is don't make a big deal of leaving. It's like <laughs> never include a signal that you are walking out of this house. And you're just like, nope, we're going to train up exactly that. Yeah. <laughs> but it's really specific because it's only during training. Like I, I think what you're trying to do there, Erica, is, and correct me if I'm wrong, is you're creating a, a, a stimulus that allows the dog to discriminate this is going to be a safe trial versus like any other time the owner leaves yeah that's exactly right it was sort of a way to hopefully protect our training and that eventually they could use that cue um when they're actually leaving and and i do think that 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 idea of let's not tell the dog when we're leaving um (laughs) i think it knows (laughs) (laughs) that and and i wonder about these dogs that do have this anxiety and i talked to Dr. Lisa Gunter about this too. In fact, this might've been her idea that I'm just stealing is that um, these dogs that are anxious, it might be even beneficial to them to be to be very predictable for them. Mm. Um, and that oftentimes what we're trying to do is like, guess what? My shoes don't, putting on my shoes doesn't mean anything. Guess what? Picking up my keys doesn't mean anything. Um, but maybe, you know, maybe that's a weird way of going about it. Maybe we need to say, yes, I'm leaving, but these are the contingencies and you're going to be fine. And we've worked on this. Um, mm-hmm. So you know what's going to happen rather than, yeah, sometimes I leave when I do this and you'll never know. <laughs> maybe yeah. I wonder if that um, uh, adds to any any anxiety. I know I, I do that with, um, you know, when my dogs have to go into veterinarian, I try and sort of protect things for them, like let them know things are bad things are going to happen now. Like, <laughs> so, you know, I put the muzzle on. Uh, when they're going to get vaccinations. And so they know 
bad things will only happen when that muzzle's on and when the muzzle's off, you can relax because you know nothing's bad bad is going to happen. <laughs> but I, I think the way that you define the whole game that, all right, here's your cue that we're mm-hmm. playing the game where I leave the room and you get the reward when I come back. Mm-hmm. And so you're, you know... I, I think verbally when you're explaining it to the human, it makes perfect sense. And I think going through it with the animal, they will pick up on it too. Mm -hmm. And if you draw the parallels with the human literature um, for small children, because all children developmentally go through separation anxiety. And the number one thing that they tell you is do not disappear on your kids, you know. (laughs) That that when it's time to leave, you get everything together and you let your children, you say goodbye and you give them their hug. You make a ritual of it and you say goodbye and you let them see you leave. Mm -hmm. And then if they're having problems, you practice this. Okay, first I'm going to walk around the corner. (laughs) Then I'm going to walk out the door and then I'm going to get in. You're going to hear the car and I'm going to come back. And Yeah, it's safe. Yeah. And so, I mean, you know, it's funny that there's all this proven stuff in the human literature and no one stops to think, hey, maybe we should do that with our animals as well. Because, I mean, so for common. children, you're you're establishing their attachment type for the rest of their lives. Like, you can create an anxious adult if you spend that whole separation anxiety phase sneaking out on them. So, <laughs> right. Yeah. You know, no, that's and, a- and parents do that because they're like, oh, I just don't want to hear, <laughs> hear my baby cry. It's just so much easier if I just leave. Um, <laughs> but not for your child who was playing happily and then walk, looks around and, wait, where did everybody? go you know it's the same thing we do with our dogs here's this fabulous stuffed kong and look at all these toys that i got you okay quick honey start the car you know (laughs) so yeah no i think that's a good point and and that just reminds me that you know there are um training techniques too that will recommend right if you're taking your dog on a hike and the dog goes too far ahead is for the owner to hide and kind of induce a little anxiety in the dog so the dog is always like checking back because they're worried you might disappear on them and so you kind of ruin their fun on the hike (laughs) right because now they're just like she might disappear (laughs) so i can't actually enjoy the smells so really interesting so speaking of of the the parents or the owners leaving you know a common um recommendation is that when you're working on a protocol such as this that you never leave the dog alone even outside of the training that you're doing except for the training that you're doing here essentially so did you put that contingency in place as well where like owners could never like if they were going to leave the house someone would have to be there or the dog would have to be at daycare or something like that uh we didn't and that would be if i were to do this again i would change that Um, you would okay yeah i think um you know we saw minor (laughs) progress we saw progress but you know i think we show how slow going this treatment is um within and across sessions i think we would have gotten um more progress across sessions if we had put that into place Uh, so my guess is that uh the reason uh, you know some of our dogs ended back at like step zero again on the next on the next session was because of those owner absences in between you know we just talked about like trying to develop stimulus control over these are training sessions and these are all the unsafe sessions where mom is going to leave for four to eight hours mm-hmm. um my my guess is that uh our our discriminative stimulus of telling the dog they were going to leave um probably did not control enough of that um mm-hmm. and so the effects of these non-training sessions still impacted our training because I think the owner departure part was probably so salient that it kind of swamped out any stimulus control we had. Um, And if it is really fear-inducing or anxiety-inducing, then it's likely to generalize across all, you know, similar conditions, even if it's like, yeah, I know you told me it's going to be okay and you're going to be right back. But I don't know, the last eight weeks or, you know, the last week you've been bailing on me. So, um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I would certainly try to use the discriminative stimulus like we did, um, but I would try and protect it even more and protect the training more by um you know, requiring owners to not leave the dogs alone, whether that's going to daycare or having a friend come over or whatever. I, I think that that interesting. Did you ask the owners, you know, when you when you have to leave, um, put them in a separate area from where you're doing the specialized training or did they stick with the same area? Oh, it's a good question. Yeah, they stuck with the same area. So that pro- that I think is a problem. We told them not to use the queue outside of training. Um, who knows? <laughs> who yeah. knows? Exactly. Um, and certainly I think you're right, Jessica, with the the um, not changing the environment for them that might have given us a little bit more of a training bump too. Yeah, because I 
I, I, when I was working with private clients, that was a really big issue because, I mean, they have to go to work and mm-hmm. not everybody can, I mean, now it's COVID, so I'm dating our, our cab chat, um, but, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> but, you know, outside of pandemics, people do have to go to the office and um, you, you can't tell somebody, well, you're just going to have to call in sick for two weeks to get this training done or three weeks, you know, um, it it doesn't work. So if you could run the study and ask people to do it or do it with people who have that luxury in their lifestyle, then we would have an answer. You know, how long would it take if I just yeah. take time off of work versus, you know, I just can't take time off of work I, without knowing what the end timing is on it. Yeah, I think that's a really good question and, and mm-hmm. a really valid like and useful research direction to say, Right. If we if we do everything perfectly and we guide you on this, what does it look like time wise? Are we talking weeks? Are we talking months? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. What can you kind of expect so people know what sort of resources they're going to have to put into this? Yeah. And so, so sort of speaking of which, when when we're thinking about like the the methods that you have, the can you talk a little bit about the the criteria that you set for each dog and how you determine those? Yeah. So we tried to move up our criteria really gradually. So the dog had to be successful on two trials before move before it would move up and have a more challenging criterion. And if they showed problem behavior on a trial, then they moved back to the last successful level. Um, and so it was sort of a two up, one, one down um, scenario. And we started with... Um, you know, if the dog, if the owner could get across the threshold, we started with immediate return. So um, the owner, you know, left, closed the door, immediately returned. Like I said, some of those dogs started before that, and we had to work on the, you know, walking across the kitchen and coming back, walking three quarters across the kitchen, coming back, touching the door, coming back. Um, once we could get the owner out of the door, then we went to um, uh, a five second delay, and then a ten second delay, fifteen seconds. So we worked up by five second increments up to. Um, believe 15 seconds where we started taking 15 second increments and then eventually 30 second increments. So we started with pretty small um, uh, time changes because I Mm -hmm. really think these dogs um, can't tolerate much, much delay initially. And so we try to shape it up really gradually. And so the question I would have there, just because I know, I think I remember, yeah, I remember Melina DiMartini is obviously a specialist in this area, not a researcher, but like a clinical specialist in this area. And one of the things that she recommends, if I recall from her seminars, is she doesn't go up like, you know, um, three seconds, three seconds, five seconds, five seconds, seven seconds. She she goes like three, five, seven, three, eight, six, nine. So there's like it goes up, but it mm. also goes down. So did you think about incorporating that at all? Or is there a reason you, you didn't? Yeah, we didn't in this one. Just we kind of try to keep it just sort mm-hmm. of straightforward. But I think that I think how you know, what these criteria are and how we arrange them are, are going to, you know, sort of improve the, the outcomes in the training. Maybe, and, and yeah. yeah, maybe. And those, and I think those are the parameters we really ought to explore. Like maybe our leaps were too big or they're too small, or could we, is there a way to find um, something we can adjust to the dog? Like this dog can take bigger leaps than that dog. Um, but I do like the sort of, you know, randomization of, yeah, sometimes it's going to be shorter than the last one because it could be potentially sort of punishing, right? If like I did well, so right. I'm going to leave longer. And, uh, and so adding in the, you did well, so next trial is actually easier could, could be a nice sort of reinforcing trial. Um, so I think that'd be really fun to, fun to try and see if dogs that, you know, work along that sort of, um, criteria outperform, um, ones that just, move up uh, sequentially. Yeah, I've definitely wondered that because yeah, you're spot on. It could, the the punishing aspect of the increasing duration, I can definitely potentially see. But on the other hand, I could also see if you had, um, let's say a dog was at five minutes and you think, well, I'm going to, I'm going to throw him a bone. Haha, I'm going to um, give him a really <laughs> short, short trial this time. But then you do a longer trial next time. Then the difference between those two is pretty, lo- is larger than it would have been. And so I'm wondering if that would be punished. So yeah, I don't know. I know there's a yeah, there's just so much to consider. Like yeah, if that contrast of like mm-hmm. oh she came back after five seconds, but mm-hmm. now she's gone again for five minutes. Um, but I you know I think when we 
like you said, when we sort of recommend these things, we tell people leave for different amounts of time. So the dog, um, so it's unpredictable. Thinking, yeah. Yeah. Here we are with unpredictable again. Yeah. Sort of like she might be back the next second. Sometimes she comes, but comes back the next second. And then like, you know, six hours later, maybe it's the next second. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So I, that's why I really want people to, to understand is like the criteria that you use were really thoughtful, but really small. Um, yeah. Yeah, they, they are. And, mm-hmm. you know, even with that, we saw, you know, many trials where we still saw problem behavior, especially yeah. in the in the dogs that engage in vocal behavior. And, and so I think that just speaks to how challenging this is. And um, the owners have to be pretty persistent and pretty tolerant because it's um, slow going and it's potentially quite boring because you're just walking in and out and in and out of your house <laughs> for really short amounts of time. And making just, you know, small gains as you go. And so uh, I always feel like it's not for the faint of heart. For sure. And so let's, yeah, let's, let's get into the results because that's the, the super interesting part. So how did these dogs do, Erica? (laughs) So we um, worked with each dog for four different sessions and the sessions were uh, usually about 30 to 60 minutes. Um, Some of these dogs got up to nearly 150 trials. Um, What we saw, we had two dogs that did pretty well. Um, Both of those dogs were dogs that had their major sort of reported um, behavior, the the reason the owners kind of referred them to us um, was destruction. Um, So both of them would chew things up in the house when the owner left. And those dogs made the most progress. We got them up to um, five minutes or over five minutes of owners being gone. But again, that's still like, you know, three to four hours of work Mm -hmm. um, cumulatively to get the dog to tolerate being alone for five minutes. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, it's possible, I think with these dogs, and I think this is one of those things where we, we need more research, like maybe these dogs that engage in destruction can move faster than dogs that engage in whining or barking. Um, and so that these dogs could have moved faster if we made greater criterion leaps, because we didn't have too many trials in which they showed problem behavior, especially compared to the dogs that, um, had problem behavior, or sorry, problem barking or problem whining. Um, the other three that were sort of referred for excessive vocalizations, they were really hard. <laughs> um, they all made progress, um, but still much less progress. So some got up to, you know, just over 10 seconds of being left alone by the owner. That was one of the dogs that he was barking as soon as the owner kind of stood up or did anything active. Um, and so we worked a lot just on having the owner move around the house towards the door and we eventually got her to be able to be out of the door for 10 seconds before he, you know, and, and him not engage in problem behavior. But, you know, that is a far cry from being able to go to work. So it was, you know, long periods of time, lots of trials mm-hmm. um, and still very slow progress. We saw it, but it was quite slow. And so I liked your idea of if you almost could have probed some of the dogs to see how long they could go. And then maybe you could like skip some of the steps. Um, I'm just thinking out loud. I assume you didn't like record the dogs at all when the owners left outside of the 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 game i'll call it um because i'm wondering if you had potentially recorded the dogs when the owners left otherwise if you would have seen changes that would have been indicative of the ability to skip steps during your training um but i I assume you didn't record the dogs like other than in training right yeah you're you're exactly right we didn't record any of the departures outside of our training Mm -hmm. but i think you're entirely right like if we could monitor those that might give us some indication of um how's our training going are maybe it looks like we're getting more bang for our buck than we know and the dog can now tolerate being alone 10 minutes and so when we are in our next training session we're going to work you know maybe in the five to ten minute range and then work on from there rather Mm -hmm. than starting at something lower so i think you're right you know if we can start um getting some other sort of extra experimental measures of the dog's behavior it might help guide us on how we're how we're treating them and i think your comment about you know (laughs) technology could really benefit us you know we've got you know like our furbos and our webcams and everything. Everything. Um, so, uh, 
you know, even having somebody, you know, the practitioner that's working with the client um, monitor the dog uh, during the first half hour after departure or something to see what, what is it looking like might, might help us with treatment. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's, I'm going to bring in Mil- Mil- Milena Demartini all the time because she's the only person I know of who like really specializes in it. <laughs> um, but I think that's what she does with her clients is she, she, she has like 30 minute homework. So you were spot on with like the timing that they use and, and once a week, she watches a, a video with the owner just to ensure that what the criteria that the owner is seeing and the behaviors that they are seeing are the same thing that the professional is seeing. That's really interesting. Yeah, I think that would mm-hmm. that would be really helpful. Um, and also to get, you know, accuracy from owner reports and things like that so that mm-hmm. we can, you know, if we can train up the owners to be pretty accurate in their reporting, which these other studies never train the owners to do that, but um, it sounds like her work does that, um, then you could maybe use owner reports more reliably than, yeah. um, than just letting the owners report and not giving them any guidance on what behaviors they're seeing and how to report them. Mm-hmm. And that's something I will say, that's something I offer to my clients. Um, I, I don't have a lot of people take me up on the homework because it does, it costs extra money. Um, but it, it fits into what you're doing really well in that she offers, you, you can buy the homework, I think like by the week or something. And it's 30 minutes worth of homework and she tells you exactly like what each step is going to be. So um, I guess it's a little different in that each step is predetermined. It's not based on the previous trial per se. It's based on the previous session. Mm-hmm. Um, but you get like five days of homework. And depending on how the previous day did, the next session is, is contingent upon um, the outcomes of, of the previous session. And then, yeah, you watch you watch the behavior together. And um, I think that's the best way to go about it. It just it costs extra money. So yeah, no, it, that does sound like a really good way to to approach this and and help the owners do more work on their own, but having had mm-hmm. really good guidance. And then the other thing that I like about what you do, which I think if we're going to, what I also provide with, um, if someone does the homework with me, is we graph the behavior over time because what you're showing here is frankly depressing. <laughs> yes. I mean, right? Because like you said, the amount of work that they're going to do and the bang that they're going to get for the buck, although there are ways that you can change up potentially the protocol to to make it better. We don't know. You're going to mm-hmm. test it, I hope. Um, but it is it is depressing. And so I try to graph. Once people step out the door, I try to graph that latency so that they can see like, oh, I really am making progress. Yeah, I think that's really important because some of these gains, right, are so small that, yeah. that to the human perception, being out of the door for five versus 10 seconds um, doesn't feel like much or much of a gain and yet you're like you doubled <laughs> you're out yeah out twice as long as you were before this is great it's great and yeah and so hopefully that uh visual feedback can be reinforcing to the owner to keep keep going hopefully and that brings me to like so i'm looking at at figure two and you've got tristan on there so <laughs> can you can you how <laughs> how do i say this um how did tristan's owner do like how how did that seem to feel to them and like what was their experience and and do you have hope for tristan and and his owner so i i do think she was quite frustrated yeah um, of course <laughs> and she put in a lot of work and we didn't yeah. see a ton of progress um the good thing is i think she's very committed to him um and so I wasn't necessarily concerned about uh, his, you know, housing security with her. Um, but I, I do think that, you know, that's a dog that maybe we think um, we need extra interventions. Maybe we start, we didn't do anything pharmacological with these dogs. Mm-hmm. So, you know, maybe this is a dog where we do have to do some pharmacological interventions. Or is it even, especially because this wouldn't work for all dogs, but Tristan was a, a small little cute chihuahua. Um, can he go to work with her? Can, you know, are there other things that... Um, kind of mitigate this so she's not so frustrated and neither is Tristan um, and that can benefit him or can he go to friends' houses uh, and not just for you know, helping the treatment, but potentially some just management as well. Like since he's a small guy, maybe mm-hmm. he's more affordable and, and can fit into, you know, people's lives more easily. <laughs> it won't work for some of our bigger, rowdier dogs. Um, yeah. You know, I think the the owners um, of like Harrison and Scarlett were pretty happy with how we were doing. And when we finished with them, we you know, they had been part of the training process the whole time. So they um, had gotten feedback of like, okay, you know, this is when you're going to 
go in contingently and things mm-hmm. like that. Um, so they were going to continue the, the training, which is great. I, I think Tristan's, you know, owner probably would, would not because right. it was like four hours out of her life and now she can be gone for 10 seconds. So. <laughs> right, right. Absolutely. Um, and the other thing I was just sort of thinking, which you should also study, I'm just gonna give you lots of like amazing projects for you to do, uh, <laughs> is I wonder if the, I, I'm, I'm curious if there's a correlation with like the barking and whining being more difficult to work on versus like the scratching or the destruction. Um, either because there's some there's some correlation with like I don't know levels of anxiety, which I realize is super um, internal, or whether just barking and whining are just so much easier behaviors than like destroying things that they're just less effortful. Yeah, I, yeah, and and you know what when we look at our data, we have um, the dogs that did the best were the dogs that were destructive right. and put on DRAs, and so um, I think it brings up two questions: whether the DRA is more clear for the owner, more clear for the dog mm. and so we see more progress or I agree I think these other behaviors like um, whining and barking might be caught up in so many other contingencies in these dogs lives that addressing them in this situation mm. potentially we're still getting you know carryover from other contingencies um, and like you said they're easier potentially easier to engage in so why not um, and and I really like your idea I hadn't thought of that of the um, you know, whether this is indicative of any sort of severity level. And I think in a lot of our applied research, we don't often kind of separate out in, you know, kind of severity and how severity might impact treatment per se. Mm-hmm. So I think that's a really interesting idea of, of, of those. Um, I mean, just anecdotally uh, with Sadie, what we would see is um, we could get her not barking when the owner left. When the owner opened the door to return, she would begin to bark. <laughs> and so, you know, part of it is like, okay, we had the, the um, departure barking that was a problem and the absence barking. Mm-hmm. But we also have this return barking which might be controlled by different variables and maintained by different reinforcers and things like that um but does that then carry over um so that because we're not addressing the barking when owner returns that we're still more likely to see barking when owner leaves yeah that's interesting and then the other the other major question i would have for you just because I've done a separation anxiety protocol before personally, and it's as painful as you describe it. Um, how how do you know how well the owners maintained the integrity of the protocol, or do you do you know whether they they tried to skip some steps? Because most of us do that eventually. <laughs> so on um, uh, for our research, we were there with them, so we ah. could tell them like you need to go in now. So mm-hmm. we were kind of we ensured the treatment integrity um, after we left. I'm not sure how that how that yeah. proceeds. And I think, you know, those are other really important questions because when we're thinking about dog training, it's not just how effective is our intervention, is how well is it going to be um, carried out by the people that need to carry it out. And so, um, you know, we, t- we talk about this as sort of an operant approach where you are making your return contingent on behavior, which is harder than telling the owner, leave for one second, leave for two seconds, leave yeah. for five, leave for 10. And, you know, maybe we don't know because we need more data, uh, maybe the operant approach is better. Maybe it's cleaner for the dog and we'd see more progress. But maybe it's so hard for the owner and impractical that they're never going to do it. And so taking the treatment that maybe is less clean, you know, sort of in terms of contingencies, but is more easily um, implemented and, you know, implemented better um, by the owner, then maybe that's the one we have to go with. So I think when we start looking at these treatments, Mm -hmm. it's not just the effect on the dog's behavior, but how well will the owner carry this out and um, given how owners will carry it out, what's the effect on behavior? Yeah. You know, it's interesting you mentioned the operant piece because I feel like, I feel like that's going to explode in the near future. Um, The, the focusing on the operant versus respondent behaviors when it comes to like anxiety anxiety related behaviors um because i know there was a talk at abs which you probably saw it it was i'm going to say the person's name wrong kelsey brown or something like that um and they talked about how when they are working on anxiety related behaviors with dogs they specifically focus on operants and it's kind of based on the 2012 paper in rat that suggested that um focusing on operant lever pressing in rats versus non-contingent food for reducing fear behavior, the operant um, condition was more effective than focusing solely on the respondent. So I, yeah, that, yeah. I think that's really interesting. I was um, looking up some papers on counter conditioning 
and trying to find, because I, you know, this is one of those where, again, I don't think we have good evidence, especially in dogs, um, that we can counter condition. Agreed. You know, <laughs> scary stimulus to now mm-hmm. be like, oh my gosh, I'm so excited mm-hmm. to see all these people. Um, we, re- you know, we tell people to do this all the time. We recommend it all the time. And yet I feel yeah. weird recommending this because I don't think we have the data and we don't have the data necessarily on how to do it. Um, and then when I look back at some of the early rat literature and I need to look more to see if there's anything more recent, um, they were finding it hard to condition rats that had been, you know, learned to fear a stimulus because it was paired with shock to now mm-hmm. not show that response by pairing it with food, which I was like, mm, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder about that. And I think there was one paper um, where it was it was something similar, where when they asked for a specific response, it was not just pairing those stimuli, mm-hmm. but they had the rat respond a certain way. That's when they saw progress. And so I I agree. I, I think um, that figuring out what part needs to be operant, what part needs yeah. to be respondent, how do we package that all together to be most successful is really interesting. And how many operants, that's the other, how many operants can you do? And I'm thinking this like, um, Michael Shikashio, I went to one of his seminars recently and I know uh, him and Chirag Patel sort of do the same thing where as long as the dog is engaging in like quote unquote relaxed behaviors, kind of like what you're kind of like a DRO, I guess, like if, if it's sniffing, if it's, um, I don't know, like looking at the thing, but not in an intense way, you can operationally define that however you want. Um, as long as it's engaging in like one of 10 you know, operant behaviors, then it's going to get reinforced. But I'm like, well, how many, how many operant behaviors should we be reinforcing? (laughs) I don't know. Like, at what point is it DRO versus, you know, right, just a, you know, multiple DRAs, um, or multiple potential DRAs. And yeah, yeah, and I, I think that question of, um, what's cleared, what enhances learning for the animal is mm-hmm. really interesting. Because I, I wonder about that with the DROs that, you know, sometimes they're reinforced when they're sniffing and sometimes they're reinforced mm-hmm. when they're, you know, gazing at the sky and reinforced for scratching and, you know, doing a whole variety of things. And that um, how does that impact their behavior and their and their learning? Are they, does it become really muddy? Because I'm like, I'm not sure. Yeah. I, could, I could do so many things and I'm not sure which one is it is. Um, some don't work, but so many work. Um, yeah, I think that's really interesting. And I've, I've tried to dig into um, human literature because I was like, oh, surely <laughs> DROs and DRAs have been addressed in human ABA. Um, I still haven't found any. So if you know of any, send them you my mean way. For like, um, for like uh, anxiety related behaviors or? Just even um, effectiveness in um, reducing problem behavior. I've never seen a, com- I haven't found a comparison between DROs and DRAs. Oh, well, I don't, uh, there must be something out there. And I only say this because I know um, Jeff Tiger, if you're listening, I believe Jeff strongly prefers DRAs. I assume that there's a reason for that, but I don't know. I don't know if that's a subjective reason or if it's literature based, but Mm. probably both. Yeah. If you can find some literature, I've, I've dug (laughs) around, but I feel like I'm not doing the right searches, but I'm with you. I'm like, there's gotta be something. I'm sure they've addressed this. Yeah. So, um, so given the study, and like I said, I'm really excited about it because of for various reasons and it's it's a start it is a toe in the water of the ocean of need for separation related issues so please tell me that you are going to do more (laughs) (laughs) i i do i i mean this is um one of my real interest areas because i i had dogs with these problem behaviors mm-hmm. so I know how severe they are and in fact our current foster when he started to show some of these behaviors I'm like okay that no we can't do this because this yeah. is one behavior that's going to be really challenging for me um so I you know I think we're we've got some other research looking at predicting separation related problem behavior so I think we'll stay in this realm hopefully we'll come back to looking at some of these treatments and certainly um you both have given me some really great ideas of like hmm, things to things to mess with <laughs> and see um how they turn out so I mean, yeah I really think that next step, I mean, in my opinion, Jessica, correct me, but I really think the next step is like doing this all again, but not leaving them alone outside Mm -hmm. of the game. I think that's what every researcher wants to hear right after publishing is the (laughs) next thing you should do is completely repeat what you just did. I know. (laughs) But it would be so, like, this data would still be interesting because then, I mean, I realize it would be different dogs, and but you could say, like, of these five dogs, look how slowly they went in when we set it up this way. But with these five dogs, look how quickly they went when we set it up in this other way. 
Yeah, no, I, I do think that the, the timing component would be interesting, just like the stuff that I think it was Serple who looked at how effective are training sessions, you know, do daily training sessions get you further faster mm-hmm. than training every other day? And, mm-hmm. you know, it turns out giving those breaks every other day kind of things. Um the timing of training where do you do it right before a meal? Do you do it after a playtime? Um, there was that one article that found training sessions were more effective if you allowed free play at the end of all training sessions rather than just end it and then off you go. But if you end them and then let the dogs go out and interact and play and with you or with um, a con specific that what they learned in the training session seemed to become more crystallized and more effective. So Mm -hmm. I do think we are talking about a training scenario. Mm -hmm. So if we add some of these other components that we already know impact learning, will it work with an anxiety based situation where we also know anxiety interferes with learning? So, you know, the best way to go about Sorry. <laughs> um, I think those are really good questions. And and I'll just point out that our sessions were, you know, all in a row, right? It's like it was mm. um, a 30 to 60 minute session. And could we get more bang for our buck if we told the owner, do two or three trials here. An hour later, we're going to do two or three more trials. And that might even help, right? Because I think what we do see is the dog maybe starting to learn the game within the session, but maybe between sessions, it's still a struggle. That first trial still might be a struggle. And so if we give the dog more first trials that work well for the dog, that the owner comes right back, maybe we can get the dog's behavior up and running even faster. So yeah, I think Jessica, your suggestion on changing up the parameters of how and when we're training and what happens after training could be really fascinating. The other thing I'll say is, you know, as you have mentioned, everyone's home from COVID or for covid related issues right now and so i keep telling i keep thinking why aren't more people coming to me right now to work on separation related behaviors like now is the sweet spot to do that you will never have this opportunity again so i don't know if you can get like an aya cook up and running you know immediately (laughs) so that you can work with these people but no you're that's a really good point because yeah this at no other time, right? Are you going to have the ability to stay at home and say, well, I'm going to work with you for five trials now, and then I'm just going to sit down and do my job. And then I'll do five trials later. And everything, you know, everything in my life is as it should be. Um, Right. Yeah, I I feel like you you can do it virtually, too, I would think. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so many ideas, Mindy. I know, I know. <laughs> it's because I love your work so much. I'm just like, if Erica can just publish more papers, that would be delightful. Um, so, so given this study, what what advice would you have? I guess for either professionals who are working on this, or like owners who are working on it. Like, do you have do you have thoughts for those people? Um, yeah, I mean, and I think you know from. Melina Demartini Price's work too. She says the same thing of like, it's going to be slow going, right? Where it's yeah. going to, this is not a quick fix. Um, and we see that in our data too, that it is mm-hmm. um, really slow progress. And hopefully some of those things we've talked about in this um, of not leaving the dog alone uh, in between sessions and maybe changing up how the sessions are run can can get us further, but still it's, it's going to be slow. So I think the owners have to kind of be aware of, of the commitment Um involved but also as you mentioned being able to see progress when progress is occurring mm-hmm. um, to try and keep keep things going um, the other things I'd, I'd recommend I think we do see that pushing the dog to the point where they have problem behavior increases the likelihood of problem behavior um, and certainly we had confounds with how you know we didn't differentially reinforce when the dog had problem behavior we waited for the problem behavior to end for five seconds and then come back in um, so that could be changed to see if we could you know do a better job of differentiating what's reinforced and what's not very reinforced. Um, but I do think making sure that we're keeping the dogs under a threshold during this training is probably pretty essential too, that as soon as we put them into that that state of, oh my gosh, mom might leave longer than you're comfortable with, um, then even when we make the next trial easier, the dog still oftentimes shows that problem mm-hmm. behavior. Mm-hmm. 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 So yeah, and and following up on that, my other advice was to take smaller steps than you think you should. <laughs> That's <laughs> so, so think, hard, though. Yeah, people 
want to push through and uh um you know again we need to identify that but i think taking smaller steps you're more likely to be successful in the long run Mm -hmm. so jessica any final thoughts no i i think uh i think it's very interesting and very important work um the number of people who relinquish animals due to separation anxiety is you know is one of the top reasons so Mm Um, it's important trying to figure it out. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And tough. So thanks for taking on um, a project that you probably knew was going to be really difficult, Erica. <laughs> thanks. Yeah. I mean, it, it was really uh, rewarding to see the, um, finally see some data out there, I think, and to like sort of validate what people experience when they're, when they're uh, working through these problems. And thank you for all the great ideas. Now you might inspire <laughs> me to get, get that I cook up and going. <laughs> okay. Sounds good. All right. Well, I will let the both of you go and we will see you all next month. Thanks, Mindy. Thanks, Jessica. Thank you.